This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Thanks, Carla. If you could keep that reading open in front of you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and pray with me as we seek to understand it, this second in our series on this great chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the Last week we looked at the, the evidence that Paul had for the resurrection, the witnesses he wanted to bring forward. Today he expands on what it means. Let's pray. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we pray by your Spirit that you would give us eyes to see what you have for us and ears to hear your word to us. And in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I want to ask a personal question of you that you don't have to answer in public, but what's on your bucket list? Think for a minute, what's on your bucket list? Now, of course, you know what the phrase bucket list means. It's coined in the 1960s, it turns out, but become increasingly popular in the last 15 years or so. And, of course, there are websites everywhere which encourage you to make your bucket list and for a fee, they will help you achieve or knock tick off the things that are on your bucket list. In case there's someone here who hasn't heard that list, uh, that idea before, of course, it's the idea that you make a list of things you want to do in life before you kick the bucket, right? Travel to Mongolia, go skydiving, buy a Porsche, in my case, complete the Friday cryptic crossword, whatever it might be. It's the same philosophy behind the more recent hashtag YOLO, which of course stands for what? You only live once. YOLO, you only live once. So do something outrageous or daring because you only live once. And here's the powerful thought behind YOLO and the bucket list. You only live once. Life is short, so seize the day. Play hard. Find the things that exhilarate you to the point of exhaustion and resist the things that stop you. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain. It's that simple. Now, bucket list and YOLO are new words for an idea that's been around for thousands of years, in fact. In the 17th century, uh, the poet Andrew Marvell did what poets used to do, tried to persuade his mistress into bed by saying, Always at my back I hear time's winged chariot draw near. So come on, madam. You know, get on with it. If you look at so many of the great paintings of that era, the artists would place a human skull in the picture, which might be a picture of a person in the full stride and strength of life, surrounded by pleasure and wealth and their possessions and their family, but there's a skull for them to remember that they will one day die. And then there's the phrase, carpe diem, which means, do you know what that means? Seize the day. Remember that from Dead Poet Society, that 1990 movies, 1990 movies with uh, Robin Williams, and uh, he had the, the the pictures of the the boys from a century ago speaking to the boys in uh, the boys who were actually the live schoolboys saying, "Seize the day, boys! Seize the day!" Of course, it's not a new thing. It didn't come out of the 1990s. It goes all the way back to the Roman poet Horace in the first century BC. But I think this idea particularly captivates you and me today because social media has filled our minds with the images of people having a great time while we grind our way to the office through the winter rain or change yet another dirty nappy or pay yet another bill or try to deal with our physical weakness. 
And it's grabbed us because so much of what we do these days is not actually having fun, but watching other people apparently having fun from porn to lifestyle shows. Although the sad irony is that it turns out that they are pretty much pretending. For the Christians in Corinth, the question of YOLO, of the bucket list, pressed in on them as it presses in on us today. They lived in a city in which the pursuit of bodily pleasure was in their faces. But they'd been called to a faith in Jesus, the Jesus who'd been raised from the dead. And that meant that they'd been called away from the pursuit of hedonistic pleasure as the meaning of life. And some of them were wondering, was it worth it? Was it worth giving up all that? Was it worth risking persecution, isolation and persecution for, for this? And the Apostle Paul's got two points to make that are really the reverse of each other. They're really the same point made in the opposite way, two sides of the one coin. And the first point he's making is this. If there's no resurrection, then there's no point to being a Christian. If there's no resurrection, there's no point to being a Christian. The second point he's going to make is this. If there is a resurrection, of course he believes there is, if there is a resurrection, then we do have a hope, which means that living a life for God is worth it. So first, his first point, if there's no resurrection, then we are pathetic and without hope. There's no point to being a Christian. And last week, Paul reminded us that Christ was raised. And he pulled out the witnesses, didn't he? The the Old Testament prophecies, the witnesses of the many people who saw Jesus alive and his own personal experience of conversion and the grace that swept through him when he encountered the risen Lord Jesus. But there were some in the Corinthian church who didn't quite get what that meant. Now, a big debate had been swirling around in the Judaism of the first century was the question of whether the dead would be raised, whether there would be a resurrection of all the dead at the end of time. And there were some passages from the Old Testament that prophesied this in Daniel chapter 12 and Ezekiel 37. That's the passage where they get that spiritual song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones from. You might remember that. But there was a Jewish group called the Sadducees who argued that there was no resurrection of the dead. My uncle used to tell me, you see, it's easy to remember remember which one the Sadducees were because they were sad, you see. I was expecting a little bit more enthusiasm for that brilliant piece of rapier wit. The Sadducees argued that there was no resurrection of the dead at the end of time. And Jesus famously debated them. You can see that in Mark chapter 12. And he said to them, look, you are quite wrong. You were quite wrong about the resurrection of the dead. But now there seem to be some Christians in Corinth who are influenced by this teaching, as we see in verse 12. And given that they come from a pagan background where this idea of the resurrection was certainly very strange, you can see perhaps why they found it, why they found it attractive. And so Paul conducts a bit of a thought experiment from verses 12 through to verse 19. What, he says, imagine there is no resurrection of the dead. Imagine the resurrection of the dead is actually a fiction, doesn't happen. Well, then he says, Christ hasn't been raised either. The two events are deeply connected. They're really part of the same event. If you're going to say that the end, the, the resurrection of all, of, of all at the end of the dead at the end of time is not true, is a fiction, then really the idea that Jesus has risen is also a fiction. If one disappears, then the other does as well. 
And, says Paul, that means two things. First of all, no resurrection means that I'm a liar. I'm a charlatan. I'm a fraud. I've been preaching you complete pork pies. I explicitly and repeatedly preached that Christ has been raised. And secondly, it means that your faith is a waste of time. You have no hope. You are still in your sins. The forgiveness of sins that I've proclaimed to you is not a reality. If we are not here gathered around the risen Lord Jesus and hoping in him for the resurrection of the body, then we are nothing but a sad group of weirdos. Welcome. But that's the truth, says Paul. We are spending our time and our money and giving our lives to a way of life with no future. Now let's just let the impact of that sink in. If Christ has not been raised, says Paul, then you've hoped in Christ for nothing, he says. You've hoped in Christ for nothing. It's that chilling verse, he says, if for this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Pitied. Now I guess it would have made more obvious sense this claim in the world where pursuing the Christian life came at a real and immediate cost. You immediately, in Corinth, became an outsider because your behaviour now wasn't considered normal and you risked being persecuted. And perhaps this statement makes more sense to the Christians gathered today in Nigeria uh, in churches where to gather Sunday by Sunday is to risk being burnt to death by Islamic herdsmen from Boko Haram. I mean, if they're going to take that risk and it's all a lie, then it makes sense that they are pitiable. But we've kind of covered our Christianity up with a little bit more of a veneer of niceness and decency. We've got a version of Christianity that's more at home with this world around us. And sometimes we talk as if you could pursue a sort of this worldly Christianity. We, we talk about Christian values as if they were detachable from Christian faith, as if you can love your neighbour as yourself without loving God wholeheartedly, as if you can be a sort of a Christian in this life without believing in the Christianity that tells us of the resurrection of the dead. But this is a terribly vacuous and empty form of Christianity, it ends up being just moralism, which Christianity certainly is not. It has no power to forgive sins, only to condemn us for not being perfect. It protects us from nothing. It has, as Paul says here, no hope. Paul's got no truck with a Christianity that simply values. He says, if you think following Jesus is just an ethical system, a way to be considered or do a decent, have a decent life, then that's actually pathetic. If we follow Jesus because we think we'll be rewarded in this life, then that's a huge mistake. He says a bit later, I've wrestled with the beasts in the arena at Ephesus. Now we're a bit uncertain, just as a sidebar, whether he means there that he wrestled with metaphorical beasts because he certainly was victim of a riot in Ephesus. We know that from the book of Acts. Or was he actually put in the arena with the actual animals? Regardless, he suffered immensely in Ephesus for being a Christian. And if it was for nothing, then why would he do that? He's been persecuted, shipwrecked, and lashed, beaten, whipped for nothing. If Christ has not been raised, 
If Christ has not been raised, then Paul admits he is a total loser. And we'd be better off with the philosophy of eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is quoting an ancient slogan, piece of graffiti, a philosophy that people used to live by and still do today. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. YOLO! When billionaire Kerry Packer survived a heart attack playing polo in the early 90s, he reportedly said, and this is the censored version, okay, son, I've been to the other side, and let me tell you, there's blank nothing there. There's no one waiting there for you, there's no one to judge you, so you can do what you bloody well like. Strangely, this matches Paul's logic. If there's nothing more here than flesh and bone, then don't deny yourself anything. Don't hold back. If there's nothing more to come, then sure, do what makes you popular. Do what makes you able to follow your desires. You are your own judge, after all. There's no one else to judge you. Stop thinking there's anyone else to, so do what you want to do. Certainly, there'd be little reason to become a Christian and risk missing out, or worse. And so please, if Christ has not been raised, you're welcome to come here. It's a delight to have you, but don't bother, really. Stay at home. It's beautiful weather outside. You could be in bed. Go to the golf club. Watch videos on YouTube. Take up knitting. Anything would be more meaningful than coming here if Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised. But of course that's not what Paul thinks, is it? See what he says in verse 20. He says, since in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. That's right. If there is a resurrection, since there is a resurrection, we do have a hope, which means living a life for God is indeed worth it. And then Paul shows us how that works. And the key image, the metaphor he uses is the image of first fruits, which is an agricultural image, which people from the country might understand. The first fruits are the first crops of the harvest season. And you get them in and you sort of celebrate because you say, if this is the first fruit, surely a massive harvest is going to come. But you don't imagine that the first fruits are all of it. It's the first bunch of grapes out of the vineyard and you have a taste and you go, yes, it's going to be a great year. Or it's the first batch of apples that come off the tree or the first ears of grain that come in or the first pig to be slaughtered. And they are the promise of more to come, the whole harvest, the whole crop. Christ has been raised from the dead. But it wasn't a freak occurrence. It wasn't an isolated incident. It was the beginning of a harvest. It was the sign that not just Jesus, but that all humankind will be raised from the dead. Since all have died through Adam, says Paul, all will be made alive through Jesus and face God. And then he talks about the timetable. The timetable's already started. He kind of meshes it out for us. He says we're actually living in the end of times right now because the first fruits have come in. We're in that harvest period. First of all, he says, Christ will be raised. Well, that's happened. 
And then those who belong to Christ will be bodily raised from the dead. They won't appear like ghosts. They won't waft up like bedsheets, empty bedsheets. They will be bodily raised from the dead. We'll find out more about that resurrection, about what that means next week. And then begins the process of wrapping everything up, of bringing the whole world to its completion and its fulfilment. Christ reconciling everything to him. He victorious over all that opposes him, triumphant over every power and authority. Anything that is opposed to him will not stand. And finally, even death itself will be destroyed. We will see even the death of death. I've been to many funerals here. I've taken many funerals here. I just imagine what it would be like to be standing at a funeral for death itself, to be able to point to the coffin in the, in the church and say, in this coffin is death itself. Death itself will be destroyed when Jesus reigns. And then we will see unmistakably everywhere and for all people the meaning of the gospel that the Corinthians believed in, that Paul had preached to them, and that we today have proclaimed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is an extraordinary picture of where we are all heading. The resurrection from the dead means that Christ will one day triumph over all things and everything will be under his feet. Christ has been raised means that history itself is going in that direction, whatever presidents and CEOs and kings might think. So if that's the case, what should be on your bucket list? What should you have on your bucket list if this is true? We get an idea from Paul's life, don't we? We get a kind of sense of what could be from the way Paul lived. Life for him wasn't about wealth or status or comfort or pleasure. For him, the first priority was following Christ, and everything else flowed from this. Everything else made sense because of this. Because of the love of God that he'd seen displayed for him in Christ Jesus, he knew that his life was about sharing the love of God. What we do then in this body, with this body, with and to the bodies of others matters eternally because our bodies will be raised from the dead. These mortal parts of us, decaying even as we sit here, will see immortality. These perishable parts of us, decaying parts of us, will see imperishability. These impermanent parts of us will see permanence. These inglorious parts of us will see glory, will know the glory of God. The dead will be raised up, so says Paul. Come to a sober mind and sin no more. In other words, get some clarity about your, what your life is about. To what degree is your heart given to YOLO thinking? And I know as I've prepared this today, my, my heart is very much given over to YOLO, bucket list, carpe diem type thinking. I am afraid that I will miss out. I do have a tendency to see my life as the span of my mortal years and forget that Christ is raised from the dead. 
But if you know that God will one day be all in all and that Jesus will reign wherever the sun shines, you know that everything will be brought to life, to light. You know that you don't have to pack every experience into one lifetime. When I was at university, um, we used to run a conference for the Christian group and it would happen around about this time of year. And we'd go and we'd try to get people to come to this amazing conference where you just... Uh, the teaching there has lasted with me uh, for a lifetime. and uh, But people would always say to us, you know, oh, look, it's the winter holidays. And what were they doing in the winter holidays? They were going skiing. And so a friend of mine, we used to go up to people and they'd say, look, oh, no, I'm going skiing. We'd say to them, snow melts. Snow melts. Snow's wonderful. It's fantastic. It's a great gift of God. But it's ephemeral. It melts. On your bucket list shouldn't be that extraordinary. I don't know any skiing terms, so I can't even say. That extraordinary experience on your bucket list should be learning deeply from the word of God, leaving sin behind, pursuing instead the beautiful vision of a life transformed by grace to overflow with God's love because Jesus is not just the past, he is the future. So I reckon a Christian's bucket list should look like this. One, know God more deeply. Two, walk away from sin. Think where I am particularly tempted and walk away. Three, pursue a deeper life of prayer. Four, love my neighbour as myself. Five, seek to be reconciled with those I am at odds with. Those people I don't speak to anymore won't speak to me. Six, share Jesus with others. Seven, love my church community. We could add to them. It would be terrific to talk over morning tea about what else you might put on your bucket list. But I'm afraid that we Western Christians live such comfortable lives that we don't often live with the resurrection in view. We don't see our possessions or our bodies or our work or our time as dedicated to serving God, as given by him and redeemed by him. We don't reckon to make hard or courageous decisions when it comes to these things. And I've got to say, it's one of the most heartbreaking things about being a pastor is to, is to, is to meet with people who are mature, otherwise mature Christians who know the word of God, who can tell me all about the grace of God. And yet when they're confronted with a decision about whether to obey God or to do what they want, you know what they do? They do what they want. It saddens me that when it comes to the crunch, Christians will act as if they have to cling to this fading world rather than to be obedient to the risen Lord and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Would we have fought with wild beasts in Ephesus? People often complain to me that Christianity is under pressure in Australia. Maybe that's true. But Christianity is more under pressure in Australia because of the failure of we Christians to live as if Christ has been risen than because we are being persecuted in any way. But let that not be us. Let that not be you. Christ is risen. Your sins are forgiven. So now... Put to death the life of sin and put on the life that comes from the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the one who died and on the third day was raised. 
Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.